Thank you indeed. And as we just heard from Pastor Aaron, there's a lot to be praying for within our church family. And so let's continue to raise one another up in prayer to our great God who is faithful and able to uh, do far above and beyond what we could ever ask and imagine. And that's going to be relatively pertinent to what we're going to be discussing this morning as we're continuing in our series in Ephesians that we began last week, building on our heritage. Again, as Pastor Aaron had mentioned previously, we are going through our 60th anniversary and very aptly in the book of Ephesians that talks a lot about family. And that's also very relevant to us in this season that we find ourselves in as a church family. Because this morning, we're discussing a topic that Paul introduces in verse 5, talking about our spiritual adoption. So if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be walking through verses 5, 6, and 7, and then jump over to verse 11 as we discuss this topic. And we're going to be walking through effectively a mini-series in this, in that we are in this portion of Scripture in the early part of Ephesians that talks a lot about our identity. Who is it that we are in Christ? Paul, as he's writing to this church in Ephesus, discusses, since you are now Christians, since you have believed this good news, this gospel in Christ, this is what you can expect, and this is who you particularly are because of what Jesus has done and what he has, in turn, imparted to you. So this early portion that we're going to be discussing talks about these various facets that Paul is pointing out. He talks about, last week we discussed you are blessed. We're going to talk again this morning about you are adopted. What does it mean to be adopted in Christ? So we're parking on these aspects that are worth expounding upon and looking at what does it mean that we're loved? What does it mean that we're chosen, that we're forgiven, that we're predestined, that we're redeemed, united, indwelt? So this is effectively a nine-week mini-series on our identity in Christ, the indicatives, who we are in Jesus. So with no further ado, let's read a few of these and uh, focus primarily on our adoption in Christ. Again, starting in verse 5, Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In the beloved, he switches the topic, not necessarily to the father, but now he's talking about the son. In him, in Christ, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Skipping down to verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after his counsel of his will. This is the word of the Lord that we're going to be discussing this morning. And again, fixating on the topic of adoption, we're going to look at four incredible truths about our spiritual adoption. So we'll be looking at our passage that we just read in Ephesians, but we'll also be jumping around God's word in order to build a more robust understanding of what does it mean that we have been adopted in Christ. But before we get into our passage, it's worth covering kind of a base understanding of our adoption. By way of definition, Louis Burkhoff says adoption, by spiritual adoption, is a legal act whereby God places the sinner in the status of a child. But according to to this definition of adoption, does not change him inwardly any more than parents by the mere act of adoption change the inner life of an adopted child. 
The change that is affected concerns the relation in which a man stands to God. We'll talk more about the change that God does inculcate in those whom he adopts later. But now this is just talking about the legal action. By virtue of their adoption, believers are, as it were, initiated into the very family of God. They come under the law of filial obedience and at the same time become entitled to all the privileges of sonship. So that's what we mean by way of definition when we say we are spiritually adopted. So our adoption brings us into God's family, which is very good news, isn't it? But what does that also say? If we are being brought into God's family, that means we were not born into God's family. There was a point in time where we were outsiders. After all, you cannot adopt a child who's already your own. That's illogical, wouldn't it be? And this is a hard truth for many of us to come to grips to. Because how how does the song go in Sunday school? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons said, Father Abraham. It continues, I'm one of them and so are you. When is that true and when is that not true? Well, Paul, in understanding that this song is going to be sung in children's ministry, talks about that in Romans chapter 9. He says this, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So he makes a distinction here. He goes on to say, It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. We'll see two categories very clearly built in our passage this morning, especially as we talk about the distinction between those who are adopted and those who are not. So we have those who are just born of the flesh and those who are of the promise who are regarded as descendants. So just because God created us does not mean we are automatically in his family And just because you may be descended from the longest possible lineage of faithful adherence to the one true God, dating all the way back to Father Abraham, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are of yourself in God's family. Something needs to happen. So if we weren't born into God's family, whose family do we originally belong to? There's more bad news there. Ephesians 2 talks about our previous family, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the, who was our previous father? The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in. Who are our siblings? The sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging into the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, what kind of children? Children of wrath, even as the rest. So according to this passage, we were born into the family of the dead. One of the characteristics that quantified and qualified our previous family was that of death. We'll learn more about that in just a little bit. We were born into a family of the dead, walking in disobedience to our creator. Though spiritually dead, we were still capable of disobeying he who created us, and we were obeying our father. Who was our father, brothers and sisters, prior to our state The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience is none other than whom? Satan. Satan was our father, and we were walking and working in obedience and adherence to our father. Similarly, Jesus confirms our original state by saying, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin, what are they? They're a slave of sin, the slave of sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son is the one who remains in the house forever. So we need to be sons of God rather than slaves of sin. How then does that come about? Well, thankfully, this comes about in our salvation. This isn't an added step that is incurred upon our salvation. It is in the whole package. In Romans 9, Paul emphasizes that the children of the promise are regarded as these descendants. So he's, he's looking at this category in particular and isolating it. Here he equates those affiliated with God's promise to redeem with those who are his children. There's no distinction here. Likewise, Ephesians 1 goes on to say later than our passage that we read today, in him you also after, and this is important, after listening to the message of truth. What is this message? He says, the gospel of your salvation. Is that all, just to hear it? Just to hear this good news? No, having also believed what happens. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise. We'll talk later about what it means to be indwelt. And by later, I mean Pastor Viers will come and talk about that at a later date. But we were sealed upon believing this good news who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. There's more family talk with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Glory is also a theme that we see in our adoption. It is all for his glory. When we worked through the book of Ephesians together in Purdue Bible Fellowship a few years ago, we equated the giving of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of him, as receiving a new last name, effectively speaking. When a child is adopted, he or she is legally indistinguishable from other members of the family, bearing a new last name and taking on a different family identity. So if God saved you, one of the things that he did was erase your previous familial relationship and give you his last name, metaphorically speaking, giving you a new identity, a new family relationship. By way of metaphor, God even literally changed people's names. He calls uh, Jacob Israel. He calls Saul Paul. There's such a drastic change when God brings one into his family that even a name change is often a result of that. You're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, there's no distinction between when God calls us and saves us and makes us his children. Upon adoption, Jesus becomes our brother and the one true God, our Father, and it all happens when a person embraces faith in Jesus Christ. With this, we see that adoption is a unique privilege. It stands alone. It's a bit lengthy, but I want to quote a theologian that has proven to shape my view on spiritual adoption. So Wayne Grudem wrote a systematic theology, and he taught through it in a Sunday school in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he serves as one of the elders there. And as I was listening to him teaching through this a number of years ago, he landed on spiritual adoption. And how he talked about it proved to form and shape the way I think about spiritual adoption. And so I'm taking a portion of his book and reading it relatively at length because of the richness of it. So he says this. Although adoption is a privilege that comes to us at the time we become Christians, we just read about that. There's no distinction in terms of time. Nevertheless, it's a privilege that is distinct from justification when God declares us justified and distinct from regeneration when God makes us alive. In regeneration, we are made spiritually alive, able to relate to God in prayer and worship and able to hear his word with receptive hearts. But it is possible that God could have creatures, so listen to this distinction, who are spiritually alive and yet 
are not members of his family and do not share the special privileges of family members. He gives an example. Angels are apparently fall into this category. Therefore, it would have been possible for God to decide, imagine the world, where God decided to give us regeneration without the great privileges of adoption into his family. Moreover, God could have given us justification, declared us righteous before himself, without the privileges of welcoming us into his family adoption. For he could have forgiven our sins and given us right legal standing before him without making us his children. It's important to realize this because it helps us to recognize how great are our privileges in adoption. Regeneration has to do with our spiritual life within. Justification has to do with our standing before God's law. But adoption has to do with our relationship with God as our Father. And in adoption, we're given all of the greatest blessings that we know and will know for all of eternity. When we begin to realize the excellence of these blessings and when we appreciate that God has no obligation to give us any of them, do you believe that? No obligation to give us any of them. Then, we will be able to exclaim with the Apostle John, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We, we did not have to be given adoption and welcomed into the family of the Creator. It's distinct from justification, redemption, uh, forgiveness, all of these matters. And in fact, God as Creator could have made His creatures His slaves and says, you serve me and I don't care about your state, I don't care about your comfort, I don't care about any of that, you serve me. But instead, even as Romans says it in chapter five, he takes he and she who were enemies and brings us into his family. So to sum up, we understand that none of us were born into his family. It takes acceptance of God's promise with the gospel of Jesus Christ to become a member of his family. And if that's news to you, if you previously thought I may have inherited my parents' faith, or you previously thought that I didn't have to do anything to be in God's family, then hear the good news. Hear the good news that God did send his one and only son. Again, we'll talk a lot more about that. In order to redeem a people for himself, to win he and she who were enemy into his family, but it takes, just as Paul talks about previously in Romans, acceptance and adherence. Not just hearing the good news that Jesus came to win our salvation, but believing it that I was previously in a different family, one characterized by Satan as father, sons of disobedience, children of wrath as my siblings, and I need an act of somebody external to me in order to win me into another family, and the only one capable of that is Christ and Christ alone. If you have not yet done that, recognize your current state as being currently a child of wrath and needing a savior to call you out of that and accept the good news of Christ. Next, we also saw that Spiritual adoption is not disjointed from this act of salvation. It all comes in one package. And lastly, we need to appreciate the unique privilege that being adopted into God's family certainly does afford us. Namely, we need to see our first incredible truth about our spiritual adoption out of Ephesians chapter 1. Our adoption welcomes us into a new family. It welcomes us into a new family. The opening of our passage makes it clear he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself. Ephesians 2 makes it clear we're born into a different family, one where our siblings are the sons of disobedience, our father is the prince of the power of the air. Biologically speaking, our parents 
were Adam and Eve. Our parents were Adam and Eve, and they chose to align themselves with Satan in the Garden of Eden. So I want you to throw your mind back to Genesis chapter 3 as we walk through this narrative. Had they chosen instead to deny Satan's temptation to follow him instead of God, had they chosen to deny that, all of Adam and Eve's offsprings would have been children of God biologically. But as it went, they went to and wanted a different father, so to speak, and solidified their decision by denying God's base commandment and listening to his enemy instead. And that decision had immediate ramifications. Now all those born of Adam and Eve have descended from this lineage. Just like you and I didn't choose what family that we were born into, so we didn't choose to incur our original sin nature passed down by their decision. As Jesus put it, we were outside of God's household, outside of his family, ostracized due to our family lineage as well as our own um, loyalty to our family. Each of us who is born into that darkness are loyal to them, no less. And until Christ compelled us with an invitation to join his family, we were more than pleased to remain on the outside. But once he beckoned us with his grace Through his sacrifice on the cross, we were welcomed in. So then we were no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. We got new siblings and are now in the household of God. Suddenly, everything about our identity changed therein. We got a new father. We got new siblings. No longer are we aligned with the sons of disobedience, children of wrath. We are now brothers and sisters with Jesus himself as the firstborn among many brethren, as Romans 8 talks about. And Jesus reprimanded the Pharisees in in John chapter 8, and that reprimand no longer applies to the children of God because Jesus said this of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, confirming what Paul said, and you want to do the desires of your father. That's characteristic of our previous family. But instead, but as as, as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of, not children of wrath, not children of Satan, not children of disobedience, but children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of he who should have been our father, God. So our siblings are drastically different, and our father is entirely different. What implication does that have on our lives today? What implication ought it have? We're to live like we're in his family, brothers and sisters. If you are one in Christ, we're to live as such. I mainly mean this in two senses, that we should live differently if we're in his family. Number one, our new family is a present reality, independent from our own thoughts, words, and deeds. That's the first sense that I mean this. And number two, it should be obvious that we're a part of a different family. So these two points represent the the breakdown of Ephesians itself. Ephesians 1 through 3, as we talked about, is gospel indicatives. This is who you are if you have been one in Christ. And 4, 5, and 6 are gospel imperatives. Because this is what you are like and what you are about, this is what you are to be and what you are to do as a subsequent result of this. So it is with this distinction as well. There's nothing that we can think, say, or do, or can not think, say, or do that will change our status as a son or daughter of the king because we have been one in Christ and it's one with our salvation. Thus, if you're in Christ, there's nothing we can do. But the second point is this present reality ought to affect our response and how we live as a result of it. 
Remember John 8, Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So picture with me the adopted son, redeemed from a life of slavery, called out of a family characterized by the sons of disobedience with Satan himself as their father. Picture him welcomed into a new family with new siblings, children of God, children of life, and the perfect creator as the adoptive father. But imagine him living exactly as he did in his previous life, a slave of sin and Satan, aligning himself with everything that the world would value. Anyone can see that there's something dramatically wrong about that particular picture. And yet, every time we disobey God, we're acting like our biological parents, Adam and Eve. We affirm the same decision that made them align with Satan in their own will way back in Genesis 3. Brothers and sisters, and I really mean that, brothers and sisters, it must not be so. Romans 8 shares the importance of holding this last name. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, in other words, we are one by Him, we are sealed in Christ These are sons of God. So this ceiling points back to the adoption once more. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. What does enslavement always lead to? Fear. But what does adoption as son lead to? But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Recognizing our adoption will lead to a familial relationship with the Father, one that is right and not characterized by fear, but by love. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, so this is a difference, our life ought to look different, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. But beyond this point, something phenomenal happens when we're welcomed into our new family. We do end up becoming more like our new father. There are many ways that human adoption reflects spiritual adoption. There are a lot of things that equate between the two. Yet the differences are quite drastic as well, leaving spiritual adoption in a category of its own. In other words, our understanding of spiritual adoption can't be derived exactly from what we see in human adoption. We can't just look at what's going on in the world with adoption and say that must be exactly what is characterized by um, with spiritual adoption. But that's also very, very good news that there's a distinction. For instance, human adoption always spawns from the crucible of brokenness. There's always a mom and a dad who either cannot or are unable to parent a child. And that's, that's brokenness. That's not ideal. That's not how God had created us. He created us in such a way that a mom and a dad would be able to parent their children. And so automatically, from a human perspective, adoption is within the crucible of brokenness. The ideal has been severed, and now adoption has to occur. But when a person is spiritually adopted, it is only good news Someone who is born into death is now made alive and brought into the relationship he or she was actually intended to be in from the beginning, unlike human adoption. We are brought back into that which we should have been. Yet the differences extend far beyond that. John MacArthur explains, human parents can adopt children and come to love them every bit as much as they love their natural or biological children. They can give an adopted child complete equality within the family life, resources, inheritance, But no human parent can impart his own distinct nature into an adopted child. Yet that's what God miraculously does to every person whom he has elected and who has trusted in Christ. He makes them sons just like his divine son. 
Christians not only have all of the son's riches and blessings, but he imparts to us his very son's nature. An adopted son or daughter will never have the genetic similarities that a biological child retains. And yet, we see something entirely different going on with spiritual adoption. John says it like this, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us. There's a distinction, remember. This world, the reason does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Now, and it has not yet appeared as of yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, what? We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. You and I are daily made to look more and more and more like Jesus. And one day we'll be just like him in a sense that boggles the mind, in a sense that is incomprehensible in our current state. Isn't spiritual adoption amazing? Isn't it wonderful and distinct in many, many ways? And while I'd like to say it's all good news all the time, we must also understand that our adoption came at an incredibly high price. That original decision for Adam and Eve to align themselves with that different family came at a cost we could never and they could never hope to cover. The legal ramifications of their betrayal were passed down swiftly and permanently in Genesis chapter three. Right away, God starts bearing down the judgments on the, on the man, on the woman, and on the serpent, on Satan, as if to say, this is what it is now like to be outside of the family of God. This is the characteristic of your new family. The world was subjected to futility. Sin turned us against God, against one another, and the new family trait of death was brought to bear. Again, what's characterized by the family of God is life and light and goodness. What's characterized by Satan as our father is death. There was utterly nothing that Adam and Eve could do to undo their decision and rejoin alignment with God the Father. And yet even then, a message of hope was delivered. This promise that Paul talked about in Romans chapter nine, it is the sons of the promise that are children. And yet, even then, the message of hope was delivered. And curiously enough, it's not spoken to Adam and Eve, but it's spoken to their newfound father, Satan. God the Father says this to Satan, I will put enmity between you and between the woman, between your seed and her seed, singularly speaking. He shall bruise you on the head, O Satan, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That was the promise. He would not be the permanent father to Adam and Eve's subsequent children. There was going to be a way out. One of her offspring would crush their foe father, allowing them to follow him to the heavenly father. Again, one of her offspring, Eve's offspring, even if this, in this broken lineage characterized by death, would crush their foe father, allowing them, the subsequent children, to follow him to the heavenly father. Our passage talks about the actualization of this promise. In him we have redemption through his blood. We know this singular seed to be Jesus, and his redemption is from the family we were born into. To speak in human terms, the heavenly father only has one biological child, and he was born of the spirit to the Virgin Mary. What did we just celebrate by way of holiday recently? My wife's birthday. No, 
we celebrated, yeah, we celebrated Christmas. And that was the time where we celebrate and recognize God sending his son to live among us. So God sent his, again, speaking in human terms, only biological son to live among us. In one sense, the one true son came to live among those who had rejected his father. He did this because of Adam and Eve's plight. They couldn't do anything to undo their betrayal. So God sent his son, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing, there it is, many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. There's the recognition of the cost. This suffering is stated in veiled terms in Genesis chapter three. How is it stated? He shall bruise you, you shall bruise him on the heel. It looked much different than Adam and Eve likely anticipated. When you think of it from their imagery, it just would have looked like a, a snake striking somebody in the heel. But what did it actually look like when Jesus came on this earth? Certainly looked like suffering and sorrow. We know that from Isaiah, he was a man characterized by sufferings and enduring sorrows. So he, he went through that his whole life, but then he was physically beaten. His body was broken and destroyed. He was flogged with a Roman cat of nine tails with his, his flesh being ripped off of his body. And then he was put on a cross and died a death that was unimaginable. It was one of the most torturous deaths for that time. And not only that, the wrath of those rebels that he had come to live with and live with among was put upon himself as the father crushed him with the judgment that was due do us. Now, is that what Adam and Eve imagined when they had this promise given to them, that he shall strike him in the heel? Why is it important to talk about the cost of our spiritual adoption in these heavy matters? While the reasons are manifold, several rise to the top. Number one, why, do, why talk about the cost? Because it elicits gratitude in our hearts. When we think about what Christ has done, what God the Father had chosen to do to win us to him. As we just said, we just went through Christmas. Did anyone leave the price tag on the gift that they gave you? I know that that's, I, I've accidentally left the price tag on something. I love you this much. You know, you wanted that new tool set. Here's a couple hundred dollars for you. There's something about leaving the price tag on where you're like, oh, okay, a little bit extra. I just, one of the gifts that um, was given to me multiple times is I made the mistake of telling people I love uh, sriracha. And so they, I just got bottle after bottle after bottle of sriracha. And I don't know if you've gone to the store lately. You can't find it on the shelves. And so these gifts were like, what a cost in order to get me the, with the a little rooster on it, that kind of sriracha. So we have, to, we have to think of the cost of our adoption because it allows us to appreciate and thank the Lord for this gift that he has given us. Another reason that we have to think about the cost is it reminds us of the severity of our sins. Very often, we could be tempted to not think of how, um, how great of a betrayal it is to go against the father that, whose family we've been adopted into unless we reflect upon the cost that was made in order for us to be welcomed into this family. So it, it brings a gravity and a weight to our sin when we choose to betray our now father. Number three, it shows us how deep the father's love for us how vast beyond all measure, that he should take his only son and make what? A wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away and wounds which mar the chosen one. What do they do? Bring many, here's the adoption, sons to glory. One of the things that ought to elicit in our heart is a knowledge of how great this father loves us, his children. 
But the end of verse 7, the beginning of 11, discuss the third incredible truth surrounding our spiritual adoption. It results in astounding blessings. Good news from here. Yes, we are redeemed from our previous family, one characterized by death and with Satan as its patriarch. Yes, we are adopted into the family of our God through the blood of his son, but we see that in addition to all of this, according to our passage that we read in Ephesians, our sins have been forgiven. Pastor Ross is going to talk about this in subsequent weeks, so I don't want to park here too long, but I hope you've been able to see the independent value of each aspect that we've been discussing. While we're narrowing in on spiritual adoption this hour, it's important to see that each facet of this salvation is a gem by its own right. The letter half of verse seven says, in him we have the forgiveness of our sins, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In, re- in reiterating Wayne Grudem's point, it's entirely possible that God could have set up a system wherein the forgiveness of sins was not presumed upon redemption. Like a slave redeemed out of slavery, it's feasible that he'd still have to pay for any crimes that he committed while he was in his previous state. Isn't that the case? Couldn't that have been the case? There are whole systems of Christianity that even adhere to a form of this. There are a lot of forms and sects of like Catholicism that adhere to purgatory in that it is not just simply uh, finally and fully forgiven upon salvation, but then you have to pay for uh, your sins or you have to be purified. It's not Jesus crying out from the cross, it is finished. In other words, the work of redemption is done. It is, it is finished once you have finally been purified and paid for your sins. No, that's not how God set up his system. He sent it in such a way that we are forgiven of all of our sins upon our redemption. Our spiritual adoption comes with the forgiveness of sins. We can now say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our new family comes with a clean slate, the very resume of our perfect brother, which is another aspect altogether, imputed righteousness, one we're not going to talk about, but we are given forgiveness. But what's more, the passage shows that we've received an inheritance when we're welcomed into God's family. Verse 11 that we went on to talk about says, in him we have obtained this inheritance. Galatians 4 virtually summarizes everything we've stated to this point while emphasizing this inheritance that we've received. Paul says to the church in Galatia, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ from, all, from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until a date set by the father. So we also, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here's the good news, that gospel, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption, there it is, as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, that last name, in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God or through God, what then does the heir receive? Since we're adopted into his family, is it a paltry remnant? Is it the scraps? What do we get when we're adopted into God's family? This couldn't be further from the truth. Just receive scraps. In a passage that John Piper uh, claims is one of the most vital in all of Scripture, the Word of God exclaims, He who did not spare his own son, the Father, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also, with him, if he gave us Jesus, freely give us all things? What are the two words that stand out to you in that passage according to inheritance? The two last ones. 
What, what are we to receive as, as inheritance of this, as heirs of the Father? All things. What falls outside of all things, brothers and sisters? Nothing. It's all things. He put it as plainly as he could. Our spiritual adoption avails us no disadvantage and yet every privilege of being a child of God. Not only do we get God, but we get everything that comes with him. Isn't our spiritual adoption amazing? Utterly utterly undeserved. But it doesn't end there. Verse 11 closes with the last bit of good news. Our adoption is final and complete. Those familiar with adoption, human adoption, likely know about what's called finalization day. Finalization day. It's a time when the family gets to the courthouse. They go to the courthouse for a judge to declare the adoption to be final from a legal perspective. And usually it's a day of celebration where typically family and friends are allowed to be present. So I hope you're picturing the event in your mind. The judge is up before them. Family and friends are with them. The child is officially declared a part of this family. How much greater a joy accompanies the adoption of a child of God. Jesus, for his part, even says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner, with one sinner who repents, with one sinner who comes from this family and is joined into that family. In our spiritual finalization day, the company that we enjoy is the heavenly host itself. And imagine the eruption of joy when the gavel comes down and the judge declares, justified. And according to our passage, there's no chance of that truth becoming untrue. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works how many things? All things after the counsel of his will. In two weeks, Pastor Brent is going to talk about our predestination in Christ. So you'll learn much more about God's determinate will and its unwavering nature and how it can't be broken. But the relevance for that for us today is that we can rest assured, brothers and sisters, since God works all things according to his own purpose, I'm going to meet my end. And in his own counsel, I don't have to ask anybody else, I'm only, counsel, I'm only taking counsel from myself. In accordance to his own will, I'm going to do it how I want to do it. Nothing external can possibly change our status as adopted. And because all of this was decided, according to verse 4 of Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, we can rest assured that he had all the facts leading into this decision to finalize our own adoption. So, brothers and sisters, our adoption welcomes us into a new family, and we can rejoice in that. We're no longer a part of a family with Satan as its patriarch, sons of disobedience as our siblings, characterized by death and darkness with an eternity as such. We've been won into a new family, new last name, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, new siblings, and new eternal destiny to be with Christ forever. And let's remember that our adoption came at a high price. Let's not forget that Jesus had to pay our penalty in order to win us into his family because there's nothing we could do to get there. He had to traverse that chasm for us. And let's stand in awe that our adoption results in astounding blessings. Would it not have been enough that he redeem us, that he regenerate us, that he forgive us, that he call us out of our debt and into his kingdom? but he has instead also chosen to adopt us and not only adopt us, but give us his blessing, make us heirs to his blessing. And let's praise our new father that our adoption is final. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for spiritual adoption. We thank you for all that it represents. We thank you that you sent your son, your only son, 
to pay our penalty. We who have set ourselves up to be enemies, we who have been born into a family of darkness, born into a family of death, who could do nothing to get out of that family, and yet you called us out by the blood of your son. Thank you for the cost. Thank you for incurring that cost upon yourself because it's a debt we could not ever hope to pay, one that those who are in that family would be paying for all of eternity, but praise be to God, there is good news. So for anyone who would still be a part of that previous family, Father, I pray that you would be working in them right now, that your very spirit would be stirring in their hearts, showing your family to be the far superior, no comparison family, and that through your son, adherence to this family, adoption into this family is entirely possible. So Father, I pray you'd be working in them right now. But for those of us who are in your family, may we rejoice in you. May this mini-series be an aspect where we reflect on the goodness of you in adopting us and redeeming us and loving us and blessing us and giving us all things in Christ. We love you and we ask this in his name, amen.